The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Now Habakkuk is tucked right there in the middle of the most ignored section of our Bibles, right between Nahum and Zephaniah. And I'm really happy to examine this part of God's Word, and I'm excited to see what God has to teach us through the pen of a very obscure, ancient, minor prophet. When I was, uh, when I was at Saints Bible Institute, a college in Italy, there was a very unique way that the school had of teaching the students responsibility and also saving themselves a lot of money. They would have a, a couple students pair up, and each month you would be responsible for taking care of a different chore that you would do in the mornings. So one month, I and a friend were given a, uh, a responsibility of mopping the main areas of the indoor parts of the campus, and um, we decided to take turns every day. I would, I would mop one morning, and then he would mop one morning, but neither me or this other guy had any re- idea of how to mop a floor. We didn't get it. We didn't understand it. Uh, We had no idea that what we were doing was completely incorrect. We didn't understand that the mop would eventually become dirty and you had to wring it out and get the dirt out of it. So over the course of a month, the mop got dirtier and dirtier until finally it was just like completely black and covered in hair and stuff. And we would run it across the floor. And as we would do that, it would just leave this puddle of mud and streaks of dirt. Um, So fortunately, we had a good friend who eventually had the grace to inform us how dumb we were and showed us how to use a mop correctly. Um, allow me to remind you where our text here is situated in history. If it's helpful to you, there's going to be a simple timeline up here on the screen behind me. <clears throat> Habakkuk was a prophet who lived during the reign of Josiah. He was the last good king of Judah. And during Josiah's rule, there was a great revival and a reestablishment of proper worship. But a short time after his death, his son Jehoiakim became king, and his his uh, desire, his, his uh, efforts were to undo everything that his father Josiah had done. He even went so far as to kill the prophet Uriah with his own hands. So Habakkuk, the prophet, was concerned for his nation, and he called out to God, desiring to gain understanding about why God was allowing all this to take place. God's answer was the farthest thing from what Habakkuk wanted to hear. Instead of declaring that everything would be quickly restored and that Josiah's revival was the reality and this this degradation was just temporary and a blip on the scene of history, rather, uh, God declared to him that he was going to send a great army, something far worse than what was currently taking place. He was going to send the Babylonians, also known as the Chaldeans, against the people of Judah. So today we're going to begin at verse 12. And in response, this is basically the response that Habakkuk gives to the horrific news that now his nation is going to be under attack by a a terrifying foreign army. And the question essentially boils down to, God, how can you clean a dirty floor with an even dirtier mop? How can you do what you're doing to restore us and punish us and discipline us with someone who is far more wicked than we are? And so that's the question that you'll see here in the beginning of this passage. So follow along as I begin reading in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. 
O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith, by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly rise and those who awake and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of a man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Pour, you pour <clears throat> out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord, in his, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Please join me as we pray. 
God, there is much here. I pray that you would please give us wisdom as we approach your word. Our God in heaven, we are desirous to learn about your workings in this world, and I pray that you would give us an even deeper sense of your glory. Please, God, open our understanding so that we might understand your ways. Give us wisdom to see beyond our circumstances, beyond the simplicity of what we experience in our feelings and our emotions. Help us to grow in our faith as we learn to trust your plans. Give us ears to hear, we pray. Amen. The text that we're considering today breaks down very naturally into three sections, so we're going to consider them today each in turn. Now, just as a heads up, when I was originally preparing this sermon, uh, it was getting incredibly long. And so what I've done is today we're considering basically the skeletal structure. We're looking at the bones of the passage, and next week we're going to examine the heart of it. So today we're going to look at the big picture, and then next week we'll consider the main point of it. So today we're breaking it down into three sections. We'll consider prayer, providence, and prosperity. First, we'll consider prayer. Now Habakkuk received an answer to his first question, but now he's even more confused than he was previously. There starts to be certain things that he um, questions in himself about the nature of God. So where does he begin? How does he start in his second question, his second approach to God? He starts by declaring things about God that he knows to be true. Habakkuk once again kicks off his prayer with this rhetorical question. He does not anticipate an answer to this part of his question. He says in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting to everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? So at the very outset of this oration, the prophet understands and grounds his understanding about what he knows to be true about God. He highlights the eternality. You're from everlasting. You have always existed and you will always exist. That's where he begins. You are eternal. Then he highlights God's position of authority by saying, Oh Lord, my God. In other words, I am your servant. You are my Lord. And he recognizes that God is holy by calling him my holy one. Now, these are bedrock beliefs about God that Habakkuk is holding on to in the midst of this confusion. Even though he's not sure about why God is doing the things that he's doing, he's not letting go about what he knows to be true about the attributes and character of his king. Now, as we learned last week, Habakkuk was not seeking to impugn God's character. He's not speaking negatively about him. He is not calling these attributes of God into question. Rather, Habakkuk is wondering if these things are true, which I know they are, then how can you allow evil to exist? But from these three foundational beliefs, Habakkuk knows these things to be true. He firmly and definitively concludes, we shall not die. You're sending the Babylonians. You are sending a destructive army, but we shall not die. At the very outset of this second prayer, Habakkuk reveals that he is not questioning God's promises. He knows that the Messiah is still to come. He knows that God has declared promises to Israel, to Judah, that have not yet taken place. He knows that God has made a covenant, and God is a covenant keeper. So Habakkuk declares his assurance that he knows the people of Judah will not be wiped away from the face of the earth. He, he knows because he knows the character of God. And Habakkuk also knew the books of the law of Moses. He knew how God had promised to bless the people if they fulfilled the covenant, but he also knew about the curses of God that he had foretold would take place if they refused to honor the covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, we read, 
But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now, we don't have time to examine all the curses. There's a lot of them. But if we jump down to verses 47 through 53, we'll read just a taste of what we're seeing taking place in Habakkuk's time. It says this, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and of the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat... The fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. Now, it continues on with that. That is some of the most horrific stuff you can ever hear. You are going to be so desperate, so hungry, that you would be willing to eat your own children. And I'm not going to read what follows that, but it actually builds off on what that will look like specifically because of how bad it is going to be for them. God is serious about sin. Now, interestingly, some of that same language that is used in that curse in Deuteronomy chapter 28 is repeated earlier on when God is speaking to Habakkuk in his first response, telling him about how the Babylonians are going to come down like eagles. It's a very similar representation to what we see taking place there in that curse. And Habakkuk knows that Judah has failed, which is why he says, O Lord, You have ordained them, who? The Babylonians. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. He knows that Judah has earned this by their sinful rebellion. But here's where his confusion sets in. Verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Do you see his dilemma here? Habakkuk is not able to understand how God can clean up the dirty floor of Judah with the dirtier mop of the Babylonians. He is not able to understand how somebody who is, in his perspective, wicked, but not terrible, like the people of Judah, can be destroyed by somebody much worse. So he goes on to describe the Babylonians in the next several verses, like fishermen who mercilessly collect and kill peoples like they're just fish in their nets. They have no idea about the value of human life. Habakkuk seems like a very informed person. He seems like the kind of guy that would be up on current events. He, he's that guy who reads everything, every news outlet, and he understands who these people are. He knows what they are like, and he looks at this violence and this bloodshed, and he cannot help but ask in verse 17, 
Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I see what he's doing up there in the Assyrian lands. I see what he did to Lebanon. I see what those people of Babylon are doing. Are they going to just keep doing this forever? God, do you actually punish the wicked? Commentator Kenneth Barker says this, Those who see only the short term always miss the significance of the work of God. Now Habakkuk tells God that he's going to go back to his watch post. This is chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going back to my watch post, and I'm going to wait there until God speaks to me again. Now this is a big question for all the ages. Why do you allow the wicked to prosper? And God's response is nothing short of astounding, which brings us to our second point this morning, providence. So this first section was all Habakkuk asking a question. And now, starting in chapter 2, verse 2, God is going to respond. God's first response to Habakkuk was to tell him in the previous vision that he had, if you think things are bad now, just wait, they're going to get worse. But now he's going to tell him, all of those things that I've said, just because you're praying about them, they will not change. Verse 2, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He's saying, listen, Habakkuk, I always do exactly what I say I'm going to do. I make known the end from the beginning. I am going to, I'm not going to halt the Babylonians now. I told you they're coming because they are coming. That is set. And they are coming, and they are coming faster than you probably even expect. When you think that they're coming slowly, just, just don't, don't hesitate. Look to the horizon. They're coming, and they're coming quickly. So write this down. Spread the word, Habakkuk. We want people to know that this devastation is at hand. Now, William Cooper is probably, in my opinion, probably one of the greatest hymn writers in the history of the English language. And in his song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, he penned these incredible words. He says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Feeble senses, meaning like your temporary outset, your emotions, your your senses. Uh, But trust him for his grace. Because behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now, it is unwise, and it is even downright unbiblical, to gauge our understanding of God's love for us based upon our circumstances. We can experience a lot of frowning providences. We can experience difficulties. And sometimes these things that take place in our lives are literally earth-shattering to us. But that does not mean that God has any less love for us. In fact, we can be confident that God is using even the most painful of our experiences for, his good, for our good and for his glory. Now, there's a balance that we have to strike here. And I'm going to give you the, the far ends of the spectrum. And when I mention these, you're going to say, well, I've never said that about both of them. And perhaps that's true. It's likely true that you would never verbalize these things because to do so would reveal the deep darkness of your heart. But in reality, when terrible things happen in our lives, we gravitate in one of these two faulty directions. Here's what they are. First, there's the one side which says, we view God's providence, we know he's in charge, and we say, God should work for me like a genie should work for me. He should do whatever I asked him to do in order to make me feel comfortable. And if he's not willing to do those things the way that I want them to be done, then it is clear evidence to me that God doesn't love me. In short, God doesn't care about me. He's not doing things the way that I want them to be done, so he doesn't care about me. Now, on the far opposite side of the spectrum, in our modern time, I think this is probably less our our propensity 
But there are times when uh, those, especially those of us who believe in the doctrines of grace, can fall into this category, which says, on the far opposite side of the spectrum, God has already predestined everything that he's going to do. It doesn't matter if I pray. It doesn't matter what I want. He, he's going to do whatever he wants, and I'm an insignificant speck in the timeline of history. I don't matter enough to God for him to even consider me in the midst of his plan. He's going to do what he wants to do, and he doesn't care enough about me to actually involve me in that large scheme, that scope of history. So why bother praying to God? Why bother asking him anything? Because in short, God doesn't care about me. Now on both sides of the spectrum, there's a major problem here. It's a deeply flawed perception of God. His big design of history is primarily for his glory. All things are working together for his glory. But what we have to understand is that God also devised all things to work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Now, do not read Romans 8.28 and read it to say God works all things together for our comfortability. It's not what it says. It does not say that he works things, all, all things together for our entertainment or even for our momentary happiness, but for our good. And sometimes we don't know what is ultimately good for us, what is producing righteousness, what is producing perseverance, what is producing, producing stronger faith, and what will result in God's maximum glory. We don't know those things from our limited perspective here stuck in our part of time. And the Babylonian captivity did not look good. To Habakkuk. He looked at this and he thought, this is the worst news anyone could ever give me. This horrific army is coming to us. This is the quintessential frowning providence. There's nothing worse. The Babylonians were the fiercest and most wicked enemies that Judah could ever face. Even the Assyrians, who were known for their brutality, looked up, looked up at this other nation of the Babylonians and they shuddered at their disgusting ways of torture and maiming and brutalizing their enemies. I mean, historically, we can look at the extra-biblical material and see that everyone thought the Babylonians were sick people. But what Habakkuk could not see was that God was going to take the people into captivity where he is going to refine them. And they are once again going to become serious about the things of God. And they would not assimilate into the Babylonian culture. Instead, God was going to refine them and send them back in 70 years where they would later rebuild the temple and reestablish the sacrifices that Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, was stopping. So God wasn't asking Habakkuk to fully comprehend his plan. God doesn't ask you to understand all of his plans. He was simply commanding that Habakkuk trust him, which is why in verse four, God tells the prophet, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, next week, our entire sermon is going to be about that one little line. It's perhaps the most influential line of the Bible in world history. It has done incredible things to cause people to understand the depths of the gospel. So next week, we're gonna spend the entire uh, sermon on those few words But for now, let me just simply say this about it. Let me quote for you from what R.L. Smith says about it. He says, Habakkuk was not to wait with folded hands and bated breath for all this to happen. He was to live a life of faithfulness. I'm going to send the Babylonians, Habakkuk. They're coming. You be faithful. I am going to send an army that will be destructive. You be faithful. Now, there are times when life hits hard. And when we get punched in the face by our circumstances, it can be really easy for us to waver in our dedication to God. It is easy for us to subconsciously say to God, well, when you get me out of this, I'll go back to serving you. When you just get me out of this, then I'll go back to honoring you with my life. 
We can begin to think like Habakkuk, perhaps, and say, I'm just going to go wait on my watch post until you answer me. I'm going to just go wait until you do something. But I want to encourage you to view trials as an opportunity to show even greater faithfulness. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is not the message that American churches like to hear. Suffering is not our friend, according to our culture. We don't like it. Nobody likes it. But what he's saying here is God is using that to produce endurance and character and hope, and hope that will not put you to shame. God is determined determined in his providence to use suffering as a strengthening agent for our faith. So when storms come, when trials come, hold fast. God is faithful. He has not left you alone. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 promises us, That after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So when we experience a frowning providence, we can join with the ranks of Paul and we can say with him in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. So in your trials, in your suffering, trust in the Lord with all your heart. It can be really easy to say that verse when you're not struggling, when it's not difficult in your life, but when it is, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own minuscule understanding. Let's move now to our third point, which is uh, prosperity. One of the most insidious and evil heresies that has ever crept into the church is the prosperity gospel. Televangelists will promise that God's primary goal in life is to make you healthy and to make you wealthy. Now, as I was preparing this, this sermon, I actually looked up, I was li- looking for quotes, like, what are some shocking things that I could say here from televangelists? I can't even bring myself to read them because they are so offensive and so wicked and so evil and, and money-centric. And I can't imagine how anyone could watch that and say, yes, God just wants my money so that he will just give me money. That is the, is so wicked. And I can't even begin, I, I just don't even want to read what I was reading before from them. And I'm frustrated by this false teaching for many reasons But in part, I'm frustrated because they've stolen one of our words. They've stolen something from us. The Bible actually does teach that those who know God and those who seek to honor him will prosper. But they've used that in such a way that they have distorted the definition. Consider Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, a very familiar passage. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. What happens to him? In all that he does... He prospers. 
Now, you can read that and read it in light of, of the entire Bible and read it in light of your life and say, wait a minute, that doesn't seem possible. But the reason is that our definition of prosperity is limited and finite, and it's all about earthly stuff. Part of our problem just boils down to the fact that we don't understand the way that God is using vocabulary. So when our eyes are set on earthly things, prosperity looks like earthly gain. But when our eyes are set on Christ, then prosperity is very different and has an eternal bent to it. So what God is going to do here in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 5 through 20 is this. He is going to correct Habakkuk's definition of prosperity. You're asking me, how do the wicked prosper? I'm going to show you what they're doing and show you this is not really prosperity. This is actually a cause for their condemnation. God is going to declare five woes over those people who look like they're prosperous. Now, we don't use the term woe very often in our American vocabulary. Nobody's walking into the grocery store and sees somebody who says, Woe to you, oh person who I don't know who almost hit me in my car. We don't say that to other people. It's weird. But woe is a way of saying judgment is coming upon those people. And when he's saying it to Habakkuk, what he is telling him is not only should those people be fearful in judgment, but he's telling Habakkuk, you should look on them not with adoration, not thinking I want to be like them, but look at them with pity. Woe to them. Woe to them who do these things because they are about to experience the devastating wrath of God. God was not just declaring these woes though over Judah and not even over just Babylon. He was speaking these to all people throughout all ages who fit the descriptions that he's about to give. So buckle up your seatbelts because we're going to move through these very quickly. Five woes, starting with woe number one, verse five. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up that which is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake Uh, Those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, this woe is specifically spoken against those who use their power to take advantage of those who are weaker than them. Now, Perhaps you're looking at that phrase that they take pledges. What does that mean? That's a way that people used to come in and think about gangsters, for example. This is a good way to to give an example. A nation would come in and they would be like a gangster. Hey, uh, you're under my protection. You just have to pledge me money. Now, I'm going to show up the first of every month. I'm going to knock on your door and you're just going to slip me an envelope that's got a couple hundred dollar bills in there. And then we'll watch over you. We'll protect you. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You're pledging to us. That's the kind of pledges that Babylon would take. They would go into a place like Lebanon. They would kill the rulers. And they'd say to the other people, well, you're fine. We'll protect you. We'll guard you. You'll be safe. Just pay us. Now, he's speaking here against people who use their power to produce negative, evil results for their own personal gain. 
Waylon Bailey explains it this way. He says, power should be used to produce positive results. The criminal justice system of almost any nation permits all kinds of oppressive acts. Simply because a matter is legal does not make the matter right before God. And when the power becomes a tool to take advantage of others, woe to you. So we have the ability to do just what they were doing in a smaller way. We as individuals can use our power to try to seek our own gain from those who are weaker than us. And from the world's perspective, those who have power are to be looked up to. They are to be envied. But if their power has come to them by evil gain, then God has already pronounced a judgment upon them. Like I said, we're moving fast. Woe number two. Woe to him, verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now this woe is spoken against those who are greedy and those who are arrogant. Their gain, the way that they have received their money is called evil gain. They love to feel security, so they buy all forms of safety to keep themselves and their goods protected. It seems like it speaks about them like birds here, right? They make their nest on high. It's like a bird who puts his nest high in the top of a tree or on the side of a cliff where it's in this deadly position so nothing else can get up there to it. And they look like they're safe. They look like nothing could ever touch them or harm them or hurt them. They're walking on top of the world. But if they've gotten their gain by evil means, then there is a great woe spoken to them. They appear safe. They appear to have everything they could ever want. And to an outsider, they appear happy and they appear content. But God says that their life is already forfeit. So do not envy the wicked who seem to have everything. Their judgment will be great. Woe number three. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire? And nations weary themselves for nothing, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. Now this third woe goes out against those who use violence as an avenue for personal gain. Here is contained the most terrifying of the promises in this chapter. This to me is just jaw-dropping. Although this can be applied to a single person, here God is speaking about a collective army, and he says they build their cities over the blood of their fallen victims. Now, if you look closely here, I want you to see two things really quick. First, this is the only time in the book of Habakkuk that God is referred to as the Lord of hosts. That means the Lord of the armies, right? It's like God is speaking to Habakkuk and he is reaffirming Habakkuk with this great, incredible truth. The Babylonians have a great army, but not compared to me. I am the Lord of hosts and I will repay And secondly, I want you to notice that God is saying his glory will go forth and it will fill the earth like waters cover the sea. It is going to completely overshadow them. Now, what glory is he talking about here? Specifically, God is declaring that he gets glory through judgment. This is something that we see as true throughout the entirety of scripture. He is declaring that he is going to receive glory by the judgment of these wicked people. God received glory through the salvation of Noah. That's an incredible story, right? God received glory by saving eight people through the flood. But God also received glory by the destruction of the wicked. 
by the destruction of all else who did not make it into that, that boat, everyone is going to bow the knee someday. And every person, whether they are saved or unsaved, is going to be a way to give glory to God. And one of the most horrific elements of our livelihood is to look around and realize that many of the people in this world are going to be giving God glory by their own judgment because they have sought the path of destruction and not the path of mercy. And this is a terrifying warning that God is giving to Habakkuk. He is telling those that, that gain through violence that they are going to bring him glory by their own destruction. Now, it could be easy for us to say something like this. Well, great. I mean, we don't live in a world like that anymore. We don't live in a world where this kind of gain by violence is common anymore. And maybe that's true. I, I would venture to guess that most of, it is, most of us in this room have never observed with our eyes an actual physical murderous act against another individual. That's probably close to true in this room. But trust me when I say that this woe is still well in effect because these sins still abound all throughout our world and probably much closer than you think. In our society, I think of those people who make a profit by aborting babies in their mother's womb. Their wealth is blood money, and it is tied to acts of violence against the most helpless of victims. They are building their personal kingdoms, grounding them and rooting them on the blood of fallen people who have no ability to fight back. Woe to them, God says. Moving forward, woe number four. Woe to him, verse 15, who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will, ha- you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, historically, the Babylonians are known for their drunken parties. These parties often led to unspeakable unspeakable acts of sexual deviancy that we're not going to even discuss here. But days upon days of drunkenness would lead them into all forms of debauchery. And whenever their borders spread, they would bring more people into that lifestyle of partying. It is the cultural epitome of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And God uses a metaphor for them, and he says, just as you are drinking the cup of wine, God has a different cup that is prepared for you. A cup filled with wrath will come to you, and God promises to turn their glory into shame. They believe that, that this is glorifying themselves. Look how great we are. We can, we can be at leisure. We can do whatever we want. We can, we can drink and be merry. But this particular declaration of woe is so interestingly fulfilled for the Babylonians that I want you to see the other end of this promise of God in Daniel chapter 5. In October of 538 BC, Babylon was defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire. And this happened during the great party that was thrown by Belshazzar. He is doing exactly what the Babylonians were supposed to be, or or that, that Habakkuk is talking about here. He is partying this incredible party of drunkenness. And in the midst of that, God sends his own finger into the room and he writes onto the wall, mine, mine, tekel, parson. And as he is writing this, the people are terrified. It says that King Belshazzar's knees are like knocking together. And so Daniel was, was called to interpret, and here's what he told the king in Daniel chapter 5, 26 through 28. He said, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom. 
He has numbered them and brought them to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And now if you jump down to verse 30, you'll read these words. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. His kingdom was ended in, a, in the night in the middle of a party. He was celebrating his own glory and it shifted quickly to his own demise, to his own shame. It was literally during one of their great parties that God delivered them over to their enemies. They thought they were safe. They thought they were powerful, but God had numbered their days. Habakkuk, I'm telling you, this is not going to end the way that you are perceiving it. You're asking me the question, will you let them do this forever? Will they continue filling their nets forever? No. Judgment is coming. Woe to them. So perhaps you're saying, well, I'm really glad I'm not like those guys. Perhaps you're here and you're saying like, I'm really glad that none of these woes are spoken about me. I'm thankful that I do not fit the description of Judah or of Babylon. But here's where things get tricky. This fifth woe, this final woe indicts you and it indicts me. It indicts all of us. Verse 18, what profit is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a stone, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now this final, this final woe here, it like, resounds like a bell throughout history. It is saying to anyone who has ever worshipped anything in place of God that there is woe coming for them. And here we all stand condemned because all of us, each and every one of us, have made a God in place of the one true God. Here, if you look carefully, what he says is the biggest problem is that they have trusted the wrong person. They have trusted the wrong thing. And each and every one of us find ourselves as guilty of at one point trusting the wrong things. For most of us, our most identifiable God is ourself. It is ourself. We worship our own desires. We seek our own self-satisfaction. So we reject God's ways because we view our way to be superior. And we feel like we can do whatever we want because our self-gratification is more significant than God's commands. We meet the description of Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, which says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. At one point, that describes every one of us in this room. So genuine prosperity, genuine prosperity, the way the Bible describes it, ultimately has nothing to do with this kind of earthly success. All the stuff that we've listed before, that's not real prosperity. In one uh, episode of Look at the Book by John Piper, if you don't watch those, I encourage you to do that. They're really great ways of studying the Bible. Uh, he correlates the prosperous man in Psalm 1-3 with Romans chapter 8, verse 37, which says to us, you are more than conquerors. But if you're reading Romans 8 and you look at the description of those people, they are people who are experiencing what, what Paul calls tribulation and distress, and famine, and danger, and persecution, and even the sword, which represents martyrdom. So from a worldly perspective, that stuff looks like losing. It looks like failure. But as Jesus said in Luke 9, 24, whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Now, if you want to 
have one, I want to have one final stop here uh, before we, we end this morning. Um, please consider for a moment Psalm 73. Now, we're going to move through this rapidly. But I want to stop here for a particular reason. Um, this psalm, I think, helps us to shape our understanding of genuine prosperity. And if we read this psalm correctly, it will be doing exactly what Habakkuk is doing here in Habakkuk chapter 2. God is teaching Habakkuk, you, you're looking at things incorrectly. You're looking at them upside down. And Psalm 73 does a little bit of fleshing out for us. So we're going to move through this very rapidly. In the beginning, it says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, Asaph, he was envious of the wicked. We see something similar happening in Habakkuk. Why can't we be like them, prosperous like them? He had a misunderstanding about the definition of prosperity too, Asaph did. So he spends the next several verses explaining the wicked. He describes what the wicked are like. They they have no pangs until death. They are so fat, which in those days meant they were rich and and comfortable, that their eyes are swelling out through their head. He, He speaks about them in all these different ways, speaking and saying, basically, I wish I was like that. My foot almost slipped. I wanted to be them. And then he gets down to verses 16 and 17 and says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I couldn't figure it out. Just like Habakkuk, I didn't know what to think about this. I couldn't couldn't put together the pieces of who God is and how these people who are prosperous and evil keep succeeding. And then he says in verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God... Then I discerned their end. There is a transition that takes place in the mind of this man where he zooms out from his current circumstances. He is no longer just looking at what he sees in their life, which appears to be success. He zooms out and he says, I know their end. I know what is coming for them. And he stopped viewing the world through a temporal earthly viewpoint. And he was given an eternal perspective. He discerned that this temporal stuff that is going on is not good for them. It is actually bad for them. He discerned the results of a lifetime of passing pleasures in the midst of rejecting God. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. Now consider this. All of those positive descriptions that we passed over, all of those ways that he described them as being prosperous, he refers to that now as having their foot set in a slippery place. He looks at that wealth and that power and that comfort and that ease and everything that they were doing that looked like they were winning, and he said that's God's way of putting their foot on a moss-covered stone at the edge of a cliff. He is setting them in slippery places. And he continues, you make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. So what does prosperity look like? Godly, lasting, valuable prosperity that's worth chasing after, what does that look like? It looks like the words found in in Psalm 73, 25 and 26. He concludes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's saying nothing else is worth it. Nothing else is real treasure. Nothing else is lasting, but God is my portion now and forever. And if that is the case, that is genuine prosperity. And that is the gospel, that Jesus is the true treasure of the universe. He is the one thing worth seeking. So here's the key to the whole chapter. It's just a taste but we'll cover it in depth next week. 
The righteous do not live by sight. They do not live by what they see around them. They do not take the earthly definition of things because they live instead by faith. They do not live by their senses. And they do not live and succeed and gain, and, and gain honor from God by obeying the law. Rather, the righteous live by their faith. So praise God that this is true because rightfully we all stand condemned. We all deserve to be under a curse of woe. We can read those things and say, woe to the Babylonians. But ultimately, we need to read those things and say, woe to us. Judgment was resting upon us. But thanks be to God that Jesus experienced that woe. He experienced that judgment instead of me. That I do not have the justice of God over me. That I have not received what I deserve. Instead, my punishment was placed on Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, please understand that woe is still resting upon you. That judgment is still resting upon you. That wrath of God is still resting upon you. And there's nothing that you can do to get it off. There's nothing you can do to earn your way into God's favor or into heaven. You cannot buy your way out of your punishment. God does not accept bail money. But here's the good news. God sent his own son to bail us out. He sent his own son to be the payment for our sins. He sent his own son to die on the cross, to redeem people that don't deserve him, to to redeem people who otherwise would be under his wrath forever. And he has done that because he loves us. So he's saying here, look, Habakkuk, listen to me, Habakkuk. All this stuff that you're looking at, you're looking at some tiny little pinhole through throughout history. You're looking at everything that I'm doing in such a minor way. You're just seeing your current suffering, but trust me. But trust me. And if you're here today, God is calling us to trust him. If you know him and love him, have been saved by him, then we are called to trust him in the midst of terrifying circumstances, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, because God is doing something great for our good. And if you don't know Jesus and you are here today, thank you for being here. We love you. We're glad that you're with us. And we want to remind you and show you that God has made a way of salvation. Jesus died and rose again, and he lives today to save all who will trust him. He will save anyone who puts their trust in him and believe that he died for them on that cross. So I encourage you, if you don't know Jesus today, don't leave without talking to me. We want you to know Jesus in a saving way. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we thank you. Lord, even as we've only considered the bones, the structure, the, the big picture of this passage, God, we pray that you would help us today to understand what it really means to be prosperous, what it really means to succeed. It does not mean earthly gain. God, we pray that we would have eternal perspective, that we would see honoring you and loving you and living for you and having more of you in our life to be success, to be prosperity. And God, I pray that as we, as we lift up our prayers to you, as we, as we send our thoughts in your direction, that we would not think about you as somebody who is required to do things the way we want them to be done, but that we would trust you and that we would rely on your goodness, that we would believe all the truth that we know about you, even in the midst of suffering. So God, today we pray that as, as we go, that you would honor, that we would honor you, that you would give us the ability to glorify you, that you would give us the ability to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.